Good morning. I'm going to start things a little bit differently <clears throat> than I normally do, rather than diving straight into the text. I want to ask a few questions. I want to ask, what are we doing here? Why did we get out of bed this morning? Why didn't you get up, make breakfast, or go pick up breakfast, and sit down and watch the Olympics? Why are we studying this book, the Bible? When my son Jack first started reading, he asked me if I'd ever read the Bible all the way through. It's a big book, right? I said, yeah, I've actually read it through more than once. And he looked at me. And he said, why? Why would you do that? Why would you read a book more than once? That's actually a really good question. There are countless books that we could read. So why do we read this one over and over and over again? Why did these Old Testament prophets, one of whom we're going to study here today, prophesy? Have you ever noticed that they're all saying basically the same thing? They point back to God and His law, and they call their people to repent. They point forward to Christ, to the salvation found in Him, to His first coming, to His death and resurrection, and to His second coming. Why do they do it? Why do we read the Bible over and over and over again? Why did we drag ourselves out of bed on the weekend, no less, to come here to be together, and why did they prophesy? The answer to all of the questions is the same, and the answer is hope. We do these things because we have hope. The words we read, the sermons we preach, the songs we sing, in them we find reason for our hope. And our hope rests on the fact that God has made a way. We do these things because we believe that this book and what it tells us is true. One of the things that it tells us is that we are sinners and we need to be reminded over and over and over again. We believe this is the very word of God and God will use the words herein to change us. There is hope for sinners here. If you're a believer, I pray that you'll feel that hope today. And if you're not a believer, I pray that God will use Isaiah chapter 11 to spark that belief in you today. And so with that, <laughs> let's dive into the text. We're going to read all of Isaiah chapter 11. So turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, 
the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Let's pray. God, we, we love you. We acknowledge before you our sin and our weakness. And God, we desperately need your help. Help us to focus. Help us to understand. Help me to rightly divide the word. God, we pray that the Holy Spirit would work in us through your word today, that we would leave different than when we walked in this morning. Help us to learn, to love, and to live out what you teach us from your word today. Amen. If I have to give a name to this sermon, and I do, I think I'll call it 
reason to hope that God will make a way. The working title was a little more nuanced than that. It was reason to hope that God has made a way, that he continues to make a way, and that he will make a way, but that doesn't really roll off the tongue. So we're going to stick with reason to hope that God will make a way. And I think this shorter title captures the perspective of Isaiah in this chapter and serves as a decent summary. So to really understand what's going on in verse 1 of chapter 11, we need to take a little step back into chapter 10. In chapter 10, verses 16 through 19, Isaiah is using this imagery of a forest being cut down or brought low. And in verses 33 and 34, he says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. So all that's left of this great forest is stumps. So from here, we see in the beginning of chapter 11, from one of these stumps, there will come forth a shoot. I noticed the crepe myrtles when we were pulling in this morning. We hack them back every fall and every spring. They start to grow shoots. And that's what we're talking about here. From the stump, there will grow a shoot of Jesse. But who is Jesse? You'll recall from Pastor Charlie's series in Ruth that the kinsman redeemer, one of the heroes of Ruth, was named Boaz. Ruth chapter 4 verse 21 tells us that Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. David, of course, was the greatest king that the nation of Israel ever had. 1 Samuel 13, 14 calls David a man after God's own heart. And there is no greater thing that could be said of a man. Isaiah 11, 1 and chapter 11 broadly are pointing to the Messiah, Messiah, to the Savior, the King who is going to save God's people. We're talking here about Jesus. Scripture goes out of its way to make sure, yikes, to make sure that we understand that Jesus descended from the line of David. Go read the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. The very first verse, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, calls Jesus the son of David. And then most of the rest of the chapter fleshes out that bloodline. So the convention of calling kings in the line of David Sons of David is clearly established throughout Scripture. But what's curious about Isaiah 11.1 is that the Messiah, Jesus, is not referred to as a shoot of David like we might expect. He's referred to as a shoot of Jesse. Why? Why Jesse? Boaz was a hero. David may be the greatest hero in the Old Testament. But Jesse? As far as this bloodline goes... He's just kind of along for the ride. So why does Isaiah 1 tell us that the Messiah is a shoot of Jesse? It's because this king, Jesus, is not just another king in the line of David. He's not another Hezekiah 
or another Solomon, this king is the Messiah. He's not just from the line of David. He is another David. It's not good enough to just say that he's from the line of David. Isaiah calls Jesus the shoot of Jesse to show that he's like David, but he is so much greater. We read a few weeks ago in chapter 9 that this king will have the government on his shoulders, and what do we call him? Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God himself in the person of Jesus Christ will sit on the throne of David. That's what Isaiah is saying here. David's family line at this point when Isaiah is writing is in tatters. The line of David is a stump. It's cut off. There's not much hope here. To simply say that a king in the line of David would one day take over would have been crazy enough. But to say that God himself is going to sit on the throne of David, that's a whole different level of crazy. Crazy in the absolute best possible way. Isaiah promises that God will make a way even though things look very dire. Chapter 11, verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord here is the Spirit of Yahweh. There are some folks in Scripture who seem to enjoy a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. King David would have been one of them. But this, this is different. The use of the Spirit of Yahweh here points to Jesus the Messiah's divinity. He is God. With the Spirit of Yahweh comes the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. And this relates to the Messiah's role as judge and leader. He's also endowed with the spirit of counsel and might. Think here military strategy and, of course, strength. The king will have the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He'll be holy. To summarize this first, the Messiah king, driven by the spirit of God, will be a judge. But he'll be good, holy, and wise. And he'll have the power and might to carry out his judgments. He will be the perfect king. Verse 3, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Other kings, all other human beings live in rebellion against God. The Messiah king will humbly and faithfully submit to God. Further, what we see and what we hear, those senses, they can be deceived. The Messiah King cannot be deceived. He'll be a completely impartial judge. My kids will often get into disputes or fights. He said, she said, um, he hit me, no, she hit me, he took my toy, no, she stuck her tongue out at me. And oftentimes, when this happens, as parents, we struggle with how to judge this dispute. Why? Because we didn't see what happened. We get conflicting reports from two little sinners, and we're supposed to judge equitably. 
There's absolutely no way for me to be just in this situation, so sometimes what I do is I just punish both of them. I'm pretty sure that one of them's at fault, but I'm not sure which one, so I'm just like, forget it, you're both in trouble. Go sit in a timeout, whatever the punishment is. And the response that I get from that is always the same. The response is, that's not fair. And I think to myself, you're right, it's not fair, but I'm not God. <laughs> that's a, obviously a really silly example, but imagine a truly impartial judge who sees all and knows all with all of that wisdom and understanding and impartiality coming to bear. Verse 4. He's not going to judge by what he sees and hears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. It says he'll judge the poor, but a better way to understand this is really that he'll judge for the poor. He'll judge fairly and equitably for the poor and the meek. In other words, he's going to take care of the oppressed. How's he going to do it? With the truth of his word. Not chariots, not horses, not tanks, not superior air power. His word. Remember, all creation came forth by the word. And that same word is the word by which the Messiah King will judge. There is so much comfort there. Verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. We see again, the Messiah King is going to be righteous. He's also going to be clothed in faithfulness. And the idea of the belt here is one of readiness. So to have your belt on means you're ready to roll. Um, so he's clothed in righteousness and faithfulness, ready to go. While this Messiah King will be a supernatural king, make no mistake, Isaiah is clear that we're talking here about a man. The one about whom he prophesies will come in the flesh and make this prophecy a reality. The Messiah, he's both man and God. God will make a way. The first five verses tell us about the Messiah King himself. They tell us about Jesus Isaiah is telling us that God will make a way by this Messiah King, but what about his kingdom? He's a divine king, full of wisdom, might, knowledge, righteousness, fairness, but how will all of these attributes be fleshed out in his actual kingdom? Verses 6 and 7. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bears shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Several years ago, my wife and I went to the zoo. And the zoo that we went to had this beautiful enclosure that housed the white tigers. And there was an area, a viewing area, where you could go, and there was about a foot-thick plexiglass wall that separated us from the tigers. 
the day we were there, one of these white tigers was pretty feisty. He was pacing around in front of that glass wall, and he was eyeballing one of the toddlers that was standing just on the other side of the glass. He was looking at that toddler the way that I look at a good hamburger. <laughs> I felt a little uncomfortable in this situation, watching this happen. Now, I recognize that this is a pretty irrational discomfort, but still, I was not comfortable with this tiger eyeballing his lunch. So while we're standing there, watching the scene, already a little uncomfortable, this lady walks up to the glass, and she squats down, and she starts petting the glass, and she says, hello, baby, hello, cutie, you are so sweet, you are so cuddly, and I couldn't help myself. I said, I'm sure too loudly to Amber, I said, does this moron not realize that if that plexiglass weren't there, that that tiger would rip her to shreds? Why was I so uncomfortable in this situation? And why did I scoff at this lady's overtures towards the cute, cuddly tiger? Well, it's because I understand the natural relationship between predator and prey. <laughs> I understand that if I find myself without a foot-thick separation between me and a tiger-like predator, I better pray. <laughs> it's not quite right, though, to say that this is the natural relationship between predator and prey, is it? That's not how God made it in the beginning. God created all the animals, and he created man, and in the beginning, the animals weren't killing each other, and they weren't killing us. The Jesus Storybook Bible has this great illustration in the Garden of Eden, and it's got Adam and Eve, and they're just sitting there, chilling, looking out over God's creation, and what's sitting right next to them, hanging out? A lion, right? I think there's probably some accuracy to that. Perhaps the way to put it is not that this is the natural relationship between God's creation, predator, and prey, but that this is the sin natural relationship. That's the nature that we all know. That's the nature that's in me that was really skeeved out by this tiger eyeballing this toddler. What we see here in Isaiah 11 is a restoration back to the Garden of Eden, back to the way God originally created, an undoing of that sin nature that created predator and prey in the first place. It's not so much that the nature of the world is being undone, it's being reverted back to what it was originally intended to be. Maybe at the, the lady at the zoo thought she was living in either the first Eden or the second Eden. I'm not sure what her deal was. Um, cute, cuddly tiger. Calvin goes a little bit further than this, not just talking about animals, he applies it to mankind as well. If the vicious animals will be tamed, how much more will we? Mankind is made in the image of God, but that image is marred by our sin. In our sin, mankind, full of predators. When the Messiah King comes, Eden will be restored. 
In His restored kingdom, no longer will women be preyed upon, no longer will the powerful prey on the weak, no longer will predators walk into our schools and prey on children. The Messiah King will tame even mankind's worst aggressions. Do you feel oppressed? Do you feel preyed upon? We see evidence of this sin nature all around us in the world today. It's how we live. It's the air we breathe. As those of us who have hope, we look forward to a day when Jesus, the Messiah King, restores creation. God will make a way. Verse 8. And this one is crucial to understanding verse 6 and 7. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. If you read through this text quickly, you may be tempted to look at verse 8 and think it's just another example of how predator and prey will be reconciled. You may think, okay, we get it. Wolves, lambs, calves, lions, babies, snakes, all playing together. It's true that right now, if a baby played over a cobra hole or pet an adder, they would get bitten. Just like a calf would be eaten by the lion and the lamb would be killed by the wolf. But the snake, the serpent, holds a particularly infamous position in this story. You'll recall in the book of Genesis, Adam was given one command. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Move forward a few verses. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The serpent is Satan. And the serpent tempts Adam and Eve to sin to break the only commandment that they were given. They fall for this temptation, and sin enters the world. With sin comes this enmity between predator and prey, and with sin comes death. Genesis 3.19 God says to Adam that he, Adam, will return to the ground, for out of it you were taken... For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death and sin enter the world through the temptation of the serpent. And while there was enmity between creatures in general because of this, there was a particular kind of enmity between man and serpent. Genesis 3.15, God is speaking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We don't have time to go today into a ton of detail, but the broad consensus throughout church history interprets that this offspring of Eve here in Genesis 3.15 is specifically referring to Jesus, our Messiah. Jesus, through his work on the cross, crushed the head of the serpent, crushed the head of the of Satan. And although his heel was bruised by his death on the cross, he defeated sin and death and undid this curse. 
God will make a way by undoing the curse of sin and death. That Isaiah included snakes here in this passage is absolutely no accident. He's intentionally pointing to the curse of sin and death being broken. Verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So verse 9 is both a summary of and a reason for what we see in verses 6 through 8. They shall neither hurt nor destroy, just summarizes everything in 6 through 8. The second half of verse 9, that's the reason for this change of sin nature, for the restoration of Eden. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. That fullness of knowledge is the reason for the restoration of God's kingdom. Animals can't hurt and destroy. Neither can people hurt, destroy, or be hurt or destroyed. Why? Because the, God, the knowledge of God is known in full. No more shadow of the law. No more already, but not yet. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, Paul says, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. This is what Isaiah is talking about. The knowledge of the Lord will be fully known as the waters cover the sea. In other words, everywhere. Isaiah and Paul are both looking forward to the day when Christ returns and he reigns in fullness. We, as Paul did, we live in this space of already but not yet. This means that as believers in Christ, his death on the cross covers our sins and we are adopted into the family of God. That's the already. The not yet is that we're waiting for Christ to come back so this creation can be restored and we can be with him forever. <laughs> Isaiah lived in the not yet, not yet. He looked forward with hope to both the first coming of Christ and the second. We look back at Christ's work already accomplished and we look forward to when he reigns in full and to when the promise of this paradise here in Isaiah 11 becomes a reality. Verse 10 and 11 mark a transition here into the back half of the chapter. So verse 10, In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be made glorious. Wait a second. So this says, root of Jesse. I thought Jesus was the shoot of Jesse. So is he the shoot, or is he the root? Yes. If the passage above didn't convince you of the divinity of Jesus the Messiah, this should. How can one person be both the root or the source of Jesse, but also the shoot or descendant of Jesse? Because this person is both God and man. John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, was in the beginning. He's always been there eternally. But John, in that same chapter, tells us that over 2,000 years ago, the Son of God came into the world became flesh, and dwelt among us? The answer is both. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. 
As Christians, this is unquestionably the most provocative thing that we believe, namely that God came in the flesh. (laughs) But come, he did, and he's coming back. When he does, he'll stand as a beacon for all peoples. The nations will come to him. The New King James Version translates this as Gentiles will seek him. All you Gentiles in the crowd, it's me too, rejoice. Christ came for us. His resting place, it will be glorious. Literally translated, his resting place will be glory. Neither he nor his resting place will be like any other king. A new heaven and a new earth, sure. But Calvin believed this refers more specifically to the church. So Christ dwells with his bride, the church. Who is the church? All of those who truly seek him. Verse 11. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. The second time reference here should cause you to pause and say, okay, what was the first time? The first time was when God freed his people from slavery in Egypt, the Exodus. Isaiah is saying, God is going to call all of his people from far and wide back to himself. He continues on in verse 12. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Verse 13. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. Again, the Messiah King, Jesus, he'll be a signal or a banner for all his people, both Jew and Gentile, scattered all over the globe. That banner or signal will call his people, the church, home. The old jealousies, the old infighting, all that's gone too. All of the faithful members of David's kingdom will be joined together with the Gentiles without enmity, jealousy, or harassment. Verse 14. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. The people of God will be agents in God's coming kingdom, and God will conquer all the peoples, all of his people's old enemies. The Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, all groups who have tormented God's people in the past. Verse 15, And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead the people across in sandals. Verse 16, And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. God is going to dry up the sea of Egypt and spread the Nile thin to make a way for his people to cross in sandals. Isaiah here is echoing what God has done in the past to show what God will do in the future. Isaiah is saying God will make 
away. In this second exodus, God will call his people home and he will remove all obstacles so they can make it there. Again, Calvin said about verse 16, and I quote, he said, this ought to direct our thoughts to the final deliverance of the church by which we shall all be delivered from all troubles and distresses so that though what we are told about a resurrection and immortal life, they may appear, appear to be incredible. <coughs> and the means of accomplishing them <coughs> excuse me, are not seen by us. They're a mystery. Still, the Lord will easily find a way. And that's, that's really what it boils down to, isn't it? As Christians, we put our hope in the reality that God has made a way for us. As Christ made clear throughout his ministry, the biggest problem for the Jews, for God's people, wasn't the Egyptians or the Moabites or the Ammonites or even the Romans. The biggest problem every person has is their own sin. Do you, when you reflect on that, do you feel the weight of that today? When you read as we did in Isaiah 11:4, that the Messiah King will kill the wicked, do you, in self-righteousness, say, yeah, Jesus, get him, kill the wicked? Or do you recognize what God clearly says about you and about me, that we are the wicked? We've all sinned, every single one of us. We all have finely tuned senses of justice, we're quick to say, that's not fair. But I can assure you, you do not want what you deserve. You absolutely do not want what is truly fair. The Bible is crystal clear. We're all sinners and that our sin deserves punishment. We're all going to live forever but there are two options. One, eternal damnation and punishment separated from God. That's the default. In our sin, that's where we're all headed. The alternative is to live forever in the kingdom of God, but most importantly, to live with Jesus. Left up to ourselves, we are all damned. We are all headed for option one. But God has made a way. The same Messiah King, the root and shoot of Jesse, who will bring, bring peace and call his people to himself, that same mighty King came to the earth, lived a humble, perfect life, and died a sacrificial death. Talk about not fair. Talk about unjust. The only man who ever walked the earth who did not deserve death died a horrific death for you and for me and for sinners everywhere. God made a way. He made a way through Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus took the punishment for our sin. God made a way. Jesus was raised from the dead that at the last day we can be resurrected with him. God made a way. Do you believe this? Do you put your hope in this 
every day? Is this what gets you out of bed in the morning? Is your life built on this hope? If it is, I encourage you, brothers and sisters, rest in that hope. Regardless of your struggles today, there is great hope for tomorrow. If you haven't put your hope in this reality, God has made a way for you too. Will you trust Him today? Let's pray.